Christians can be a joyful but odd bunch. In fact, Christians can be a really strange group of people to those who aren't Christian, especially those who totally dismiss what the Bible actually teaches. So I don't mean strange here as if all Christians have weird hair color or that we only laugh at cheesy jokes. And your pastor makes cheesy jokes. He laughs at cheesy jokes. You can just ask my children. That's certainly true. But the strangeness I am speaking about this morning is from the perspective of those who discredit the claims of the Bible. They discredit what it says because they don't believe what it teaches. They think it's odd and strange and outdated. But I'm talking about what real Christians believe, not fake Christians, not just those who pretend to follow Jesus, but really aren't. I'm talking about the real deal Christians who take this book serious, who read it, believe it, and try to live by it. Listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're welcome here. I'm glad you're here and you've chosen, or maybe you were forced to be here, among all places today. I want to just side with you this morning that you probably agree with me that what Christians believe can sound really weird at first. I mean, Christians can be a strange box of crayons, can't we? I mean, think for a minute what we believe. We believe in an invisible God who has always been. There's never a time God was not. No one made God. And no human being has ever even seen him, at least on this side of heaven, in all his glory and holiness. The monotheistic beliefs of Orthodox Christianity and this church as well declare our faith in the triune, invisible, immortal, eternal, uncreated creator of the universe. And this God, who is the only true and living God, is to receive all glory, honor, and praise forever and ever. We believe that this uncreated God also spoke the world into existence out of nothing. We believe that the eternal God created a real man and a real woman named Adam and Eve a really long time ago. We believe that he put them in a paradise-like garden to work the ground and to enjoy its blessings in a perfect state of goodness and human flourishing. A man and his creator once lived in unified, unbroken fellowship and perfect peace. But amidst the pleasures and delights of all God had provided for them, God gave the first man and first woman one prohibition to heed, one boundary, one fence by which they were called to respect, one warning sounded forth with severe and lasting consequences, if not obeyed against rebelling this God. 
the command in Scripture was to enjoy all his good gifts except the fruit of one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This command was given to Adam and Eve as a clear testament that God can be trusted in his authority over you. But we also believe that Adam and Eve gave in to that temptation. They disobeyed God. They listened to the lies of a talking serpent. Yes, a talking serpent. We believe that. Who is supernaturally empowered, possessed, and influenced by a fallen angel named Satan or the devil. We believe that the chaos we experience in the world today, the drama and frustration you may have even experienced this past week, is a result, ultimately, of this first rebellion in the garden. Suffering. Injustice. Evil. And ultimately, death. When it really gets boiled down to it, It all began on this dark day when man was then separated from his God. Christians also believe that God has spoken to us and that he has a wonderful and glorious plan for all creation, including sinners like you and me. We believe that God has made known himself to this world externally, through creation, by what we can see with our eyes. And God has made himself known internally to every human being, that he exists by giving us a moral compass that tells us when we've done right or wrong. That that moral compass, the Bible calls, is a conscience. But over time, and through divine providence, we believe that God has shown us this beautiful plan for creation in its complete form through the Holy Scriptures. What we know today as the Bible, the book we hold in our hands or scroll with our fingers, contains 66 books divided up into two testaments written in about a half a a dozen or so genres through the pens of at least 40 human authors over 1,500 years of human history. We believe that fallen human beings wrote in their own context, in their own language, with their own personality and problems, but were carried along supernaturally to write down what God sovereignly intended. This is why we as Christians don't look at the Bible as like any other book in the world. This is why we put our faith in the authority of the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul would say that the Scriptures are inspired, or as he says in 2 Timothy 3, breathed out by God. We believe that the Bible, the God-breathed Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, tells the story of God's redemptive plan to send a serpent-crushing Savior who would perfectly embody all that the prophets, priests, and kings of the Old Testament were appointed to do 
the descendant promised from the throne of King David, would one day come and rule over the earth. But this king would first come in the form of a sacrifice, a servant, a lowly servant, and give himself for sinners. Christians believe that this Messiah has come through the birth of a virgin teenage girl named Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit of God, the eternal Son of God who became incarnate, stepped into time and human history, truly God, yet truly man, Jesus of Nazareth, would grow up to be a man, and he would fulfill all righteousness, die on a cross, rise from the dead, ascend back to heaven, and he promises to come back again. Christians believe that trusting in Christ and in Christ alone is the only way to be reconciled to God. And Christians believe that this message about God reconciling a sinful world to himself is called the gospel the good news. But one of the weirdest things amongst all those that I mentioned, not even mentioning God speaking through a burning bush and a donkey, read through the Old Testament, you might have more questions than answers. One of the weirdest things that Christians believe, and I mean the real ones, not the counterfeit stuff, is what we believe about our sin and what we believe about where our joy ultimately comes from. Christians believe that once we see our sinfulness for what it is and who it's against, only then do we understand what we most need in this life. Christians believe that once we see our badness and our devilish desires that come from here, not out there, here, then and only then are we able to experience true and lasting joy that this world cannot offer you. But how does recognizing, coming face to face with your evil, your badness, and confessing it to God, how does that actually lead to joy? To answer that question, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, if you're using the chair Bibles provided, you should find that on page 263 and 264. Again, if you don't have a Bible at home that you can read, you can take that one with you as a gift from our church to you. And uh, late Merry Christmas gift. There you go. Psalm 32. This is the word of God. A mascal of David. <clears throat> Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, 
and a new spirit, there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without, without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. If you're taking notes, my outline comes in the form of two questions for us to consider this morning. Number one, who is covering your sin? Who is covering your sin? Number two, are you heeding God's discipline or are you hardening your heart against him? Are you heeding God's discipline or are you hardening your heart against him? You'll first notice in the psalm, in the heading, that we have another psalm by David. Now, this month, we're studying five different psalms, and this will be the third psalm we've looked at together that was penned by David. Psalm 27 and Psalm 101 were the other psalms that we looked at. If you missed those, you can look those up on our church podcast. You'll also notice in the heading that this is a mascal of David. Of the 150 psalms in our Bibles, there are 13 psalms that have this description in them, mascal. You might say, what is mascal? It's a good question. I'm not entirely sure. The word mascal is related to a word that means to make wise or prudent. It certainly could indicate that Psalm 32 uh, was used as a contemplative psalm or a psalm of instruction, a psalm to give understanding, but Really, beyond that, I'm not entirely sure. you also notice in the psalm that there are three mentionings of the word selah. You can see that in verse 4 or after verse 4. You can see it after verse 5 and again in after verse 7. Uh, selah was probably uh, some type of interlude or pause when the people of Israel would sing the psalm. There would be some type of pause in between sets or there could have been an exchange of instruments. So there was a mini little intermission between each section to get ready for the next pericope or stanza. 
But again, beyond that, I'm not entirely sure, and neither are most people today. Nonetheless, Psalm 32 is one of the most well-known psalms in the Psalter. For instance, Psalm 32 is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4, which we'll get at later in the sermon. Also, just to give you a few little facts about Psalm 32, it's It was classified by the early church as one of the seven penitential psalms. Uh, Penitential just means psalms that would have expressed, for whatever reason, for one or the other, uh, psalms of repentance, uh, psalms of sorrow and confession of sin before God. If you want to know what the seven penitential psalms are, maybe you want to grow in what it means to confess your sins before God, uh, there's Psalm 6. Psalm 38, Psalm 51, which many of you will be familiar with, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, and Psalm 143. A few historical facts about Psalm 32. Psalm 32 was one of Martin Luther's favorite psalms. In 1513, Martin Luther began lecturing on the psalms to his students at the University of Wittenberg. And one day, a student raised his hand because he admired Luther and said, hey, Mr. Luther, what are one of your favorite psalms, or what is your favorite? Well, of course, Luther, just like any other good pastor and preacher, can't just pick one. He says, I like all the penitential psalms, all the ones that show my sinfulness and need for forgiveness. And Psalm 32 would have been in this lineup. It was also said of the well-known theologian Augustine that we read in Psalm 32. He read Psalm 32 quite frequently. It was even recorded that before he died, uh, he had the words of Psalm 32 inscribed on the wall as he was approaching his last hour in this life. Now, as far as the setting of this psalm, it was probably written sometime after Psalm 51. The psalms are not written necessarily in chronological order. Uh, They're not divided up necessarily in that way. Uh, Psalm 51, as you may recall, was the longest penitential psalm that David penned in the Psalter of his heinous and notorious sins against a woman named Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. But because the Lord disciplines all those who belong to him, all those that he loves, David was convicted of his sin. God sent a prophet, Nathan, to expose his sin. And Psalm 51 is really one of the clearest expressions of David's genuine repentance. So Psalm 32 is very similar to Psalm 51, but what you'll notice about this psalm is that it actually carries with it the confidence and joy of belonging to God more than it actually focuses on confessing one's guilt and sin before God. So, enough all that laying out the table. Let's get to the meal. Psalm 32. What does David state at the beginning of this penitential psalm? You'll notice right there in verses 1 and 2, David begins by describing the status of the blessed man. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. 
and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, this isn't the first time we've ever read a psalm that started off with blessed, is it? Let me just see how well you pay attention to any sermon I've ever preached. A few weeks ago, we started off with a psalm that started off with the word blessed. Can anyone just shout to me which psalm that was? Someone's got to be a little louder. Oh, joy just bringing it down. Mic drop. Psalm 1. Get to Psalm 1, guys. Let's get there quick, fast, in a hurry. Psalm 1, the leadoff hitter of the Psalms. Yes, this psalm starts off the same way Psalm 32 does, which means when you read these, you need to read them together. They really help flesh out more about the meaning of them. Psalm 1, we read this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now turn back to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Here in Psalm 32, David now echoes the blessedness of Psalm 1. What does it mean to be the blessed man or the blessed woman? Well, it's that spiritually safe and eternally secure man or woman, boy or girl. It's the one who is intimately known by God. Listen, if you are blessed in God's kingdom, that means God knows you by name. You belong to him. He loves you. You are one of his sheep. You see, the blessed state is that happy and holy status before God where sinners who deserve the curse of God's judgment instead receive the blessing of God's mercy. You see, the blessed man of Psalm 1 and the blessed man of Psalm 32 is speaking about the righteous, those who have a right standing with God, those who, if they died right now, stood before the Lord of hosts and the Lord said, you are right with me. You are acceptable to me. You are pleasing in my sight. The righteous are those who will inherit eternal life. But friends, who among us this morning can say they are acceptable to God by their own merit? Who can say they are acceptable to God 
because of their good deeds. Who among us could say that our lives are fully obedient to the will of God? Who among us can say that we are perfect and pure and pleasing to God? Or as Proverbs 20 verse 9 says, Who can say I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. Listen, we can look back over just this past week and come up with all the reasons why God should have nothing to do with us. Even if we took a snapshot of our thought life this past week, things we've said to people behind their backs that we tell to their face we love, if we just took a scoop of that from our lives, who among us could God say is pleasing in his sight? Who among us could say they are flawless to stand in his holy presence? But here in Psalm 32, David doesn't describe the blessed man or the blessed woman, for that matter, as a sinless person. That's not what the text says. Rather, he's describing the blessed man as one whose transgression has been forgiven and whose sin is covered. Or, verse 2, the one whom the Lord counts or credits no iniquity against them. In other words, God's got no beef with them. He doesn't see anything to judge them about. In other words, God looks at them and says, I have no more reason to judge you. Your sins are out of my sight. I am not against you. I am forever for you. You are declared righteous now and for all eternity according to my law. But friends, who does the Lord treat with such mercy? Who does the Lord treat with grace and kindness and reward like that? Remember, this psalm is written by David. And you'll notice in verses 3 to 5, just glance down with me quickly. The personal pronouns, I, me, and my are used. Which means at the very least, David is describing himself in verses 1 and 2. David himself calls himself the blessed man. The one who has a happy and holy status before God. The one, the text says, God has covered. But what is God covered? And why? Look again with me at verses 1 and 2. David uses several different words in Hebrew that describe what God has covered in David's life. These three words are used really synonymously, but also expressing various degrees of our spiritual and moral ugliness. 
the sinfulness of sin, if you will. Both of David, but also us. Look at verse 1. He mentions the word transgression. This is referring to our law-breaking, our rebellious revolt against God's authority in our life. Friends, it's not that we just break God's speed limit like we went three over and the cop pulled us over because he was bored in a small town. No, we don't just break God's speed limit. We run God's speed limit over without blinking an eye, going 110 miles an hour. We are rebels. At our very heart, we hate God. And Romans 8, 7 says we hate his word too. We know it's good. We know it's true. But our heart despises it because it reveals our evil inside of us. Then he goes on in verse 1, he even mentions sin. This is that common word you've heard mentioned multiple times in our service this morning. Uh, This is that general term that's used in the Old and New Testament alike that describes our default setting of missing the mark. Now, before you mistake this illustration about an archer shooting an arrow towards a target and missing it by a few inches, missing the mark, according to the Bible, is not like a father who puts his arm around his son and saying, son, great shot, you just barely missed it. That's not what it means when we sin and miss the mark. What it means is we've taken the arrow and we've despised the target of God's goodness and we put up a a target that's acceptable to us. In other words, we like to think of goodness only when it suits us. We want to rewrite the script. We determine what's right and wrong. We determine what's true and false. We determine what a perfect standard is. Listen, we didn't just miss the mark. We missed the forest when it came to meeting God's standard. And then the third word he uses is iniquity. Iniquity, it's not a word we use a lot. If we do start using this at CCBC more often, It might turn some heads if someone's not been well-versed in Scripture. But iniquity is really talking about the perverseness and corruption of sin. Listen, all sin is bad. Kids, all sin is bad. All sin will have you punished before God. God doesn't grade on a curve. But sin, when it goes unchecked, unconfessed, unrepented of, it can grow uglier and uglier. And given enough time and circumstances, it will show itself in full blossom. So as it is common in Hebrew literature, when you see a repetition of a word, it's called Hebrew parallelism, where the author is trying to make something significant to the hearers to hear. He's basically, David's speaking about how much evil has been in his life, how much sin has been in his life. And yet here in Psalm 32, David mentions two equally important truths that often send contradicting messages to our human minds. 
And it is this. We are more sinful than we could ever imagine. And God is more merciful than we could ever deserve. We're in a Baptist church. Can I get at least an amen? We are more sinful than we could ever imagine. And God is more merciful than we could ever deserve. You see, David knows what he deserves. He's not in denial. He knows he deserves the curse of God's judgment. That's why he starts this psalm off saying, I'm blessed. I'm a blessed man because God has treated me better than I deserve. He has treated me as one of his own in his kingdom when I am spiritual riffraff in the kingdom of darkness. And the blessing David is referring to here, hear this now. People in the West, in America, need to hear this. This is not money. This is not fame. This is not material blessings or having good health. Those are all good blessings to thank God for. But this is not what David sings so confidently and so joyfully about in this psalm. David is rejoicing because he is loved by God and highly favored by him. He knows what he ultimately deserves. And he knows he is blessed beyond measure because God has treated him infinitely better than his sins deserve. Christian, may you never grow tired of hearing this statement. God has treated you better than your sins deserve. God has treated you better than your sins deserve. Maybe spend some time this week singing that song in your car or in the shower. Or if no one wants to hear you sing, just put on some iPods and walk around in the woods. I don't do that or anything. Listening to his mercy is more. We sang that earlier, right? Look it up online and listen to the lyrics once again. What love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Brothers and sisters, if you're struggling this morning on this cloudy, cold, dreary day to find something to rejoice in the Lord in, think back on what your sins deserve. If you and I plumb the depths of our depravity, we will reach the heights of worship. We won't need bells and whistles on stage. We won't need funny jokes and funny stories to keep people coming to church. Tell them that old story, how wicked and wretched we are and how good our Jesus is. You know why churches are dying and failing? It's not because, well, the gospel's not relevant anymore. No, brothers and sisters, right now, I'm the most encouraged pastor on the planet, at least in Fort Smith. And here's why. Because people's idols are dying. Their comforts are crashing. Their hopes are dashed. 
but we've got the one message we know they need. You think this world's bad? You haven't even seen the depths of your heart. We don't need new legislation. We don't need a new building. We don't need a pay raise. We don't need just a little self-improvement to our life. We need a resurrection. And that comes through this glorious news, through this glorious Savior, but it always begins by hearing how deeply wicked we are. You see, you don't have to motivate a church to sing when they have something to sing about. You don't have to motivate a church to bring their Bibles when they know this is the living and abiding Word of God. You don't have to get people all fired up to pray and confess their sins when they're already sensitive to their rebelliousness inside. Brothers and sisters, may we be at CCBC a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching, sin-confessing, kingdom-of-God-exalting church until Jesus comes back or he takes us home. Fire me or close the doors if we ever lose sight of that. And I mean that. I went way off script. But the blessed state that David speaks about wasn't always experienced in his heart. There were moments in his life where he couldn't say it was well with his soul. Here in Psalm 32, David recounts a time in his life when he carried around a burden too heavy to bear. Look at verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Have you ever had a taxing week? I'm talking one of those long weeks that Monday felt like 10 years ago. You got to the weekend, you collapsed through the door, you were emotionally and physically spent. In fact, you felt numb. You didn't even have emotions. You didn't even have words to express how numb you've become. In fact, your body itself began to hurt because of stress. Maybe even crying. I know we live right now in the winter months and folks can struggle with seasonal affective disorder or the winter blues. The dark clouds in the sky are really a good depiction of what's going on in your heart. Depression can be painful, especially when you don't feel like you can share it with anyone because Then you feel all alone and isolated, and so the pain just gets worse. Well, here in Psalm 32, David expresses the burden of being physically and emotionally spent. He gets to the place where he is filled with pain and an unrelenting anguish of depression-like symptoms. 
But David's silence is not because of the winter blues. And David's exhaustion is not because it was a tough week at his job. David was worn out because David was hiding his sin. David was worn out because David was hiding his sin. That's why in verse 3, did you notice? He says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Verse 4, for day and night. Did you catch this in your Bibles? Your hand was heavy upon me. Whose hand is David referring to? The Lord's hand. That's just another way of saying this. God had made his fatherly presence known by not letting David off the hook. And David experienced what we all experience when we try to run and hide from God. When we try to live a double life. I remember trying to do that my freshman year in college. Go to church on Sunday, go to Bible study on Wednesday. But I was at places that I could not even tell you publicly that I'm ashamed of on Thursday night. I remember meeting a Christian girl sitting next to me on a bench. I had just lost a friend in a car wreck. I was discouraged, didn't know what to do with an 18-year-old boy that just got killed. And she gently came alongside me and just reminded me that this could be one of the ways is God waking me up because she knew what I was doing. I know what it's like to harbor sins in your heart, all while trying to look godly and respectable to people you want approval from. When we try to act religious one or two days a week for a few hours, but the rest of the week we flirt with the devil's delicacies. Friends, you try to hide sin, it's going to wear you out. It's going to catch up with you. Your sin will find you out because sin always grows in the dark. Sin loves an echo chamber, doesn't it? It loves swirling around in our minds and looking for others to affirm us in what we were believing or doing. That's why the temptation to complain or grumble among the Lord's people has always been one of Satan's favorite tactics in his ancient playbook. When you can get someone to agree with you in your discontentment, agree with you in your grumbling, agree with you in your suspicion. Church people are good at this. They can cloak a disguise that's really cloaking their unbelief and yet making it look like godliness on the outside. Think of Israel in Numbers 14 that Cliff read earlier. Here they are about to approach the promised land. God shows them, I've been faithful to you. Look, look where I've brought you. And a little bit of grumbling 
had them wanting to go back to Egypt. And they began to question God's leadership in their life through Aaron and Moses. You see, sin also makes us avoid people who we know will speak the truth and love to us. You know what it's like. I remember when my brother and I were fighting in the living room as a, growing up. I mean, you know, wrestling, doing boy things, not like really, really hurting each other. I could hear my dad's Chevy S10 truck from a mile away. When I knew my dad pulled up, we better break it up real quick. I know in my life as a Christian, when I know I've been living a little bit of immature and worldly and sinful, when a godly man or woman shows up, I get nervous. Just being around godly people make me want to be more godly. And sometimes I want to avoid them. I know that's true for you too. You see, brothers and sisters, we don't need to isolate ourselves to our own feelings, thoughts, and beliefs because oftentimes sin's favorite place to play is in isolation. Proverbs 18.1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. If you're here today and you're a Christian and you don't belong to a local church that takes responsibility for your overall soul and welfare, you need to find a local church you can do that with. You do not need to be a lone range Christian running around with you and Jesus got your own thing going. If you're doing that, you are antithetical to the New Testament. There is no category for a churchless Christian. Period. Repent, find a good church, and commit to it to do spiritual good. You see, sin doesn't lay dormant, does it? Like weeds in our yard, unless it is uprooted from our hearts, it only spreads and affects everyone around us. And for David, his reluctance to own up to his sin led to a miserable life. One commentator said that David's remorse was gnawing at his vitals. Friends, the church is only for two types of people. It's for Christians who want to fight against their sin and grow in their relationship with Jesus. And the church is for non-Christians who are tired of carrying around their sin and are looking for hope in Jesus. That means this. A true and healthy church has absolutely nothing for people who want to pretend to follow Jesus. The church has absolutely nothing for people who want to play church and who want to maybe fake Christians. A true biblical church has no category for those types of people. You see, CCBC, we should make it a priority every week when we gather to come with our hearts prepared to pray to think upon Scripture ahead of time and confess any known sin to the Lord. We should not come in this place and sing our songs, offer our prayers, listen to a sermon, and leave this place week after week unchanged. That's not God's will for you. It is God's will to renew your mind and make you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. 
The reason some of us don't get much out of church is we spend more time watching Fox News or CNN more than we do preparing our hearts for worship. You can't say amen. You might as well say ouch. We should all be reminding one another the spiritual warfare we are in. And we need to start getting honest with one another about our sin. Because you know what one of the juices and the fruits of a church that gets the gospel? It's a church where it's normal for members to confess their sins to one another. Normal. Not for the radical few. Normal. To open up your heart and confess your sins. Not complain about the sins of others but you confess to others about your sin. James 5.16 is a command. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Brothers and sisters, we need each other to follow Jesus together. I pray that God give us all a heart of gentleness when we listen to another person's sin. And I pray that he gives us all a heart of courage to be 100% transparent with our sin to one another. Beloved, this is real gospel ministry. Listen, if you're here today and you're thinking, Blake, I've been a member here now for several months. I'm just trying a place to serve. What can I do, Pastor Blake? I got a job description for you. Come alongside somebody in this church. Ask what you can pray for in their life. Read the sermon passage that's coming up the next Sunday and just get real with what's going on in here. There's your job description. You don't need a title to do that. You just need to love Jesus. And you'll do spiritual good to this church more than you realize. For David, the burden was overwhelming. The sirens of David's conscience had reached an all-time high, and he surrendered. He waved the white flag. He gave up hiding his sin. Look at verse 5. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David no longer chose to cover his sin. He confessed it. David no longer tried to hide from God. What God could already see. David opened his mouth. He acknowledged his sin, called it for what it is, and he let God cover it himself by his grace. Friends, how, how can God show mercy to sinners without himself being unjust towards their sin? How can God remain just and holy while at the same time pardoning sinners like David, like you, like me? This is the great dilemma of the Bible. If you're skeptical about what the Bible teaches, this is what you need to be skeptical about. How can a God who is holy pardon wicked sinners? and not be unjust. God says to be 
just means to punish sin. That's a problem because God is not punishing David here. He might be disciplining him, but he's not giving him eternal judgment. So how can God do this? Hold your place in Psalm 32. Go to Romans chapter 3 in the New Testament. Romans chapter 3. We will return. Romans chapter 3. Like David, this is precisely what another blessed man would learn later in his life. And it would change him forever. It would eventually be the central message of his entire ministry. The Apostle Paul, in the first three chapters of the book of Romans, lays out the dark and depraved condition of all mankind's rebellion against God. This week, I encourage you to read Romans 1 to 3 to kind of get caught up to speed. He expounds upon the sinfulness and the transgressions and the iniquity of the whole human race. But look with me, starting in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Romans 3, verse 19. But we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Well, what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Listen to verses 5 to 8. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. How can God show mercy to sinners without himself being unjust towards their sin? How can God remain just and holy while at the same time hardening sinners like David, like Paul, like you, like me? Out of God's mercy, God has met our greatest need. God sent his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, to be the sin-bearing sacrifice in our place. And through his perfect life, his death on the cross, and his victory over the grave, he offers now sinners like you and me grace, forgiveness, acceptance into his kingdom. God who punished Jesus, the innocent one, to satisfy justice, can now cover us, the guilty ones, and call us righteous. Listen, brothers and sisters, the only kind of people God has ever justified were ungodly people. The only kind of people God has ever covered their sin are those who deserved his justice. The only kind of people God has not counted their iniquities against them are those who are guilty before him. If you're here today and your life experience sounds somewhat like David, you're spent, you're exhausted, and you're worn out because you're hiding your sin. You're running from God. You've got good news today. You don't have to carry that burden anymore. It can roll away, as the old hymn used to say. Turn from your sin. Surrender. Wave the white flag. And confess your sins to the Lord. Speak honestly with him. Speak truthfully with him. Or as Psalm 32, verse 2 says, one who has no deceit. I want to ask you a question this morning. Who is covering your sin today? Is it you? Or is it the Lord? Put your faith in Christ and your sins will be forever covered by God. Well, David penned this psalm not simply to put down a few things that God taught him in his own life, but David, like any good 
Christ follower wanted others to learn about this freedom as well. Which leads to our second and final question. Are you heeding God's discipline or are you hardening your heart against him? Are you heeding God's discipline or are you hardening your heart against him? In verses 6 to 11, God wants others to know, I'm sorry, David wants others to know about the blessed life that he came to know. In other words, David didn't want to keep him to himself. You hear a good sell at a store, you want to tell others about it, right? If people were passing out $100 bills on the street and they were legit, you might want to find out, hey, where can I get them? David wanted others to experience the blessed and free life. So what does he do? Well, he instructs us with three things to pay attention to if we want to heed God's discipline, his instruction, his leading in our life, and not harden our hearts against him. Subpoint number one, seek the Lord and do not ignore him. Seek the Lord and do not ignore him. Look at verses six and seven. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Here David uses poetic language to express the Lord's eager willingness to listen to his cries no matter where we are at in our life. Whether you're in a dark valley where you feel totally alone or you feel like what David said, the waves of waters come crashing at your life. The Lord's hand is not too short to save us. He is able. He is willing. David calls him his hiding place, the safest place for a troubled soul to lean on. You see, because God is near, we're not deist. We don't believe that God just made everything and turned his back to it. God is imminent. He is near. He is with us by his spirit. We should not delay in calling upon him because he's more near than the person sitting next to you this morning. Brothers and sisters, don't put off to tomorrow what you know God says for you to do today. Do not put off to tomorrow what you know God is telling you to do today. Has God been dealing with you lately about something in your life that needs to change, but you keep putting it off? Maybe you continue to hit the ignore button, like your smartphone, but worse, on God. He continues to convict you about a particular sin, and he's impressed upon you to share that with someone even this week. Maybe there's a person you've suspected you've sinned against. And maybe you need to seek out forgiveness from them. Maybe there's someone on your mind that God has just placed there in his providence that you know you should share the gospel with, but for whatever reason, you just make excuses not to. Or maybe you're here today, and you know you've been running from God, you know you've been hiding, you've been hiding behind your parents, you've been hiding behind your spouse, you've been hiding behind the cloak of being from Fort Smith or from a well-known church, before this one, 
And if you were honest, it's been fake. You don't love Jesus. You've never loved Jesus. But this morning you're realizing that, wow, Jesus is awesome. Do not buy the lie that you can get around to having a relationship with God later in life. Do not buy the lie that when my business gets better or when my kids grow up, then I'll get serious with my relationship with God. Baloney. Tomorrow's not guaranteed anyway. Today is the day of salvation. And for everyone in here, seek the Lord and do not ignore him. Subpoint number two, follow the Lord and do not be stubborn. Follow the Lord and do not be stubborn. Look at verses eight and nine. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Here in verses 8 and 9, uh, we are reminded of God's call on our lives to be teachable, to be flexible with our plans and adapt to God's plans when he changes ours. You ever been in the car with someone? Maybe they've driven 20 times and you're like, hey, I kind of want to mix things up and let me drive. You start driving and things are going fairly swell until the person in the passenger seat tells you, hey, where are you going? Well, I'm taking a shortcut. A shortcut? There's only one way to get to our favorite restaurant. What do you mean? No, there's actually about four ways to get to your restaurant. You just go the same way all the time and it's really long. A fight begins at every intersection, and you keep putting your hand on the person's shoulder saying, listen, there are more ways to get there than just your way. You arrive 15 minutes early. You look in the eyes of your friend or family member and just remind them, be flexible. You don't always have the right answer of how we're going to get from A to Z. Brothers and sisters, God does that to us all the time, doesn't he? We can come up with the most clever and wise plan of how we think things are going to be. And God says, I've had my hand on the wheel. You just won't take it off. Stop being like a mule. Stop being like a horse. that has to be dragged around and forced to be told what to do. Trust me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God leads us, beloved, because he loves us. And God leads us, and he uses means to do it. This isn't an exhaustive list, but a few things to be reminded of. God leads us through his word. Your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. Read God's word because God's word informs how we make decisions and how we see things from God's perspective. God also leads us through his under-shepherds, his pastors or his elders. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy 
and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Well, that verse does not mean that pastors are infallible. I mean, you've been around me long enough, you know that's, that ain't true. You know I'm fallible. And that doesn't mean you don't ever seek advice from others who aren't pastors. But brothers and sisters, God, in his kindness, gives us under-shepherds, mature men to shepherd his flock. See your pastors. Hopefully I'll have a lot of them with me one day as God's gift to guide you through the murky waters of this life. And then lastly, his spirit. His Holy Spirit leads us. For David, it was God's hand, he says, that was heavy upon him. This groaning and burden of a wounded conscience, a conscience that has been sinned against and ignored. Brothers and sisters, don't ignore your conscience. Do not hit the mute button on your conscience. Educate your conscience on the authority of God's word, and God will retrain your thoughts after him. The scriptures are very clear that we should not ever, ever, let me say it again, ever harbor secret sin in our life. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, verses 30 to 32, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The famous 20th century preacher of London, Martin Lloyd-Jones, was once a doctor who became a pastor. After decades of counseling troubled people, he wrote a book called Spiritual Depression. It's an excellent resource if you'd like to add it to your library. Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones. But there's a chapter called Feelings that he has in there, and he has a whole section in that chapter of how to address the topic of hidden sin and how it makes Christians miserable. Listen to what he says from the doctor. If you are at all depressed at this moment, you should make certain that there is no obvious cause for the absence of joyous feelings. For instance, if you are guilty of sin, you are going to be miserable. The way of the transgressor is hard. If you break God's laws and violate his rules, you will not be happy. If you think that you can be a Christian and exert your own will and follow your own likes and dislikes, your Christian life is going to be a miserable one. There is no need to argue about it. It follows as the night the day that if you are harboring some favorite sin, if you are holding on to something that the Holy Spirit is condemning through your conscience, you will not be happy. And there is only one thing to do. Confess it. Acknowledge it. Repent. Go to God at once and confess your sin. Open your heart. Bear your soul. Tell him all about it. Hold nothing back. And then believe that because you have done so, he forgives you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If unconfessed sin is the cause of your unhappiness, I should be wasting my time and yours by going on with my list of other causes. How many are trapped at this point? Let us be perfectly clear about it. Let your conscience speak to you. Listen to the voice of God as he speaks through the spirit that is within you. 
And if he is placing his finger upon something, get rid of it. You cannot hope to solve this problem while you are harboring some sin. Thank you, doctor. Subpoint number three as we close. Trust in the Lord and tell others to do the same. Trust in the Lord and tell others to do the same. Verses 10 and 11, he says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Friends, the world is filled with many troubles, and David knew that very well. David knew the difference between the blessed man and the one who is not. Like Psalm 1, David knew the difference between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous have sorrows in this life, but their sorrows will one day come to an end. Their faith, your faith, my faith, will one day be made sight. The wicked have sorrows in this life, and they only increase when they face God in judgment. The righteous have sorrows, but God's steadfast love preserves them in their sorrows. God's commitment and faithfulness to them is what keeps the righteous hopeful. He will hold them fast. But the wicked, they have no place for their souls to rest. Outside of Jesus Christ, there is no forgiveness of sins. Outside of Jesus Christ, there is no hope of being made right with God. Did you notice in verse 10, the second half, he says, the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. What does it mean that God's steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord? Parents, can you remember that time where you held your baby boy or your baby girl? Your arms were around them. You didn't want to let them go. Even the thought of a nurse or a doctor taking the baby away brought such agony in your heart. Every picture from the hospital or your living room is a picture of your eye on your baby. That's the picture in Psalm 32. What does it mean the steadfast love of the Lord surrounds those who trust in him? Verse 4, David says God's hand was upon him. Verse 8, God's eye was upon him. Brothers and sisters, the reason why you and I have joy in the Lord is because his arms are around you and his eye is upon you and no one can snatch you from his hand. You see, Christians, true Christians, have reasons to shout for joy as verse 11 says, because they know that God has already met their greatest need. 
I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper spots and melt the heart of stone. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus paid it all. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would take what we've heard today from Psalm 32. That for those of us who know what it means to be forgiven, to be justified, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded that your steadfast love surrounds us who trust in you. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's heavy in their soul because their sin is being dealt with and they need someone to talk to, Lord, I pray they wouldn't leave here today with those questions unanswered, with those gut checks not dealt with. Lord, I pray you would glorify yourself as we sing these praises to you. In Jesus' name, amen.